I'm just mumbling. I'm just mumbling. <laughs> Was my mumbling hot? Okay. Stephen asked me to mumble on my way up so that they could <laughs> test the microphone. That's why Noah heard me saying, I'm just mumbling, I'm just mumbling. Okay, we are continuing our study of 2 Peter. So if you would turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. And starting at verse 1. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And we'll pause there. And we're, we're looking at this continuing revelation as, as Peter is writing and cautioning believers. And he's finished a long uh, exposition on cautions about false teachers and exposing the heart, the heart of rebellion, the, the heart of selfishness, the heart of idolatry, the, the heart of basically darkness and ugliness behind false teaching. So that we recognize the enemy is, is always seeking to dilute the truth of Jesus Christ in any way he can. So part of, part of Peter's caution through this has been the recognition that you and I would be so familiar with the truth that we'd get so rock-solid and embedded in the truth that we're protected from any false teaching. And we talked about this that very frequently for you and I. It's not false teaching from some weird televangelist that I'm prone to. It's my own feelings that often lie to me. It's my own inclinations. It's my childhood. It's some, some distortion of the gospel I grew up with that doesn't seem all that bad. So that recognition that you and I get to keep taking our own thoughts, our own history, our own upbringing, we get to take all of that in submission to the Word of God and say, Father, I'm willing for all of that to be corrected. And then he's continuing now. And he says, I'm willing to remind you, is I'm willing to remind you of this again. We talked about that, that John and Peter and Jude, um, who else? I think James, uh, so many of the New Testament writers repeat some version of this phrase. It's good to remind you of the same things again. 
so that you and I would have an attitude, a genuine attitude when we go into the Word of God. I'm willing to hear the same things again so that I take them deeper. So I'll just ask for a show of hands. Um, how many people here have started to read a passage of Scripture or listen to a sermon or, or be in a Bible study and if somebody was going to cover or you were going to read a passage that you were very familiar with, and some attitude somewhere in your mind said, I already know that one pretty well. And you sort of check out. Anybody ever done that? Okay. Who didn't raise their hand? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yes. It's a real easy thing to do. And part of what we get to recognize is God is not just teaching us information. He is calling us to the process of transformation. So until my transformation is complete, I need reminders. Until, until all layers of my thinking have been transformed into the mind of Christ, I need reminders so that I ponder deeper, consider deeper, go deeper. Uh, when we were in Sunday school this morning, uh, I think it was Tracy, I don't remember who it was, we, we put some, talked about some passage and, and wrote something up on the board. And uh, Tracy, I think it was you, but somebody said, now, how does that apply to our lives? And that always gets to be something that we keep pondering willingly with God is, Father, that sounds wonderful. And sometimes it won't sound wonderful. Father, that sounds scary. And other times it'll say, Father, that sounds confusing. But I'm willing to figure out with you how this applies to my life. How do I take this deeper in, into my living? So he says this, I'm willing to remind you of these things that you remember words spoken by the holy prophets, by the commandment of our Lord and Savior, by the apostles. So I'm going to just pause for a second with that. Prophets, apostles, and Jesus himself, he's saying, I want you to remember what you've been taught and he's getting ready to apply that in a particular area. He's getting ready to apply it to our understanding and our expectation of the return of Jesus Christ and the end of the world, the end of this age, the end of this system, and, and the arrival of the next world and the next system that God's been preparing for. So it's not just a matter of, I want you to remember to be good, that there is something really valuable for us in comprehending how God is working through human history. It matters that you and I grow in our understanding of what God's accomplishing in human history. So he goes on to this. Know this first of all. In the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue just as it was from the beginning of creation. So, it's interesting because he's saying, in contrast to what God is saying, mockers are saying, everything, that could be a T, everything remains as it has always been. Now, some of you are familiar with uh, geology and in biology, there's a term called uniformitarianism. So whether or not you're familiar with it, I'm going to 
make you familiar with it right now. Uh, uniformitarianism is actually built on this idea that we should be able to observe processes right now in biology or in geology, in, in the way physics works, the way the world works, the way things develop, the way new life uh, comes into being, et cetera, et cetera. We should be able to observe what, what's in front of us right now in the world, and that will tell us how it's always been. And, and if we can't see it, it doesn't happen. If we can't research it and, and do studies on it, it's not, it's not a fit subject for science or for human awareness. And where this applies, and, and Peter's getting ready to go there, is how could you look at the world, and actually there is an answer to this, but how could you just look out at the world and go, you know what, I bet the entire world could be covered under hundreds of feet of water. The entire world. The entire world covered under hundreds of feet of water until even the mountains are covered. Is there any way to look at the way the world functions? Now, some of the people in New Orleans might be feeling that way. But that recognition that we don't see worldwide floods today. We see regional floods. We see rivers overflow their banks. We see hurricanes and storms bring tons of rain. And this area floods. And it's not worldwide because we're sitting on TV watching it and going, oh, those poor people having to go through that. But it's nice and sunny outside, so I'm going to go do some yard work. It is not worldwide. But here's where Peter takes this thought. Verse 5, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. So Peter is saying this idea that everything remains as it always was, that what we see today tells us what's past and it tells us what's future, so that mountains are formed bit by bit by bit, gradually and slowly. Mountains are eroded bit by bit by bit, slowly. Rivers change their course bit by bit and slowly. Uh, how many people were aware or... Um, even alive, when Mount St. Helens blew. Okay, some of you weren't even alive when Mount St. Helens. Dwight, let's rest for a minute. <laughs> but that, that recognition that Mount St. Helens blew. And here's what's interesting, is geological processes that up until Mount St. Helens had largely been described as requiring thousands and thousands of years happened in a matter of days. And I'm not just talking about the explosion of a volcano. They've always known volcanoes explode in a matter of minutes and sometimes seconds. And then devastation follows and, and lava flows just wipe everything out. But what happened was that hundreds of feet of mud and sediment were laid down and were eroded in days in ways that looked like the Grand Canyon. And some of you have done research on that and are way more familiar even with that than I am. But again, here was an event that took days. And then some of the follow-up took weeks and months, but days, weeks, and months instead of thousands of years. And so that's just one small recent example, recent for some of us, that occurred and that 
challenged some geological thinking. That's going to keep happening. Uh, I think the world will keep having more and more catastrophes that don't just fit the norm. We'll get to that another day. But that recognition that Peter is saying, when, when people say everything remains as it is, they're applying it in a particular way, uh, a, a false teaching way. So Jesus is not coming back. And one area of teaching that has affected many, doct- uh, many denominations is exactly this thought. This is just a gradual process. Jesus is not coming back. So there are entire denominations that have removed the return of Jesus from their teaching, literally removed the return of Jesus from teaching, to just say that now God will work gradually, bit by bit, slowly, through the church to make the world better and better and better and better. And one day the world will be so much better, it will be as if Jesus returned in his reigning. One day things will be so much better, God will go, you know what, I didn't even have to come back. They got it. And the, and the world that we're living in looks better and better and better every day, doesn't it? So not. <laughs> and we have, and in fact, one of the reasons I think this doctrine could, could take hold is we have this three or four hundred year bubble of European and American history where the gospel improved things. The gospel literally improved things. Culture got better because of the impact of the gospel. And even non-believing culture was still influenced by that. So for this little bubble of geography and and time, this tiny bubble of a few hundred years and, and one aspect of American geography, I mean of European and American geography, it looked like things could keep getting better. That is a repudiation of all of human history, and it is also a repudiation of most cultures and most countries around the world. So we don't have to be um, fear-based, in fact, we should not be fear-based, to still recognize when Scripture talks about the end of days, when Scripture talks about the the return of Jesus Christ, do we take it seriously Or do we keep believing that everything remains as it always was? We don't need Jesus to come back because it's just going to gradually get better. And what's interesting is, is he says here, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water and by water and destroyed being flooded by water. That escapes their notice in order to believe this distortion. And again, then it becomes the basis of mocking biblical truth. Now, and I I wish we could do like a a three-hour science thing, and I actually know two or three other people I would invite to come do this with us. But the, the amount of evidence of what Peter is talking about here is amazing. There is worldwide evidence of the flood of Noah. Every every major culture in the world has a universal flood myth. And, you, and many of you know that already. So they don't just say, well, our village flooded, 
or country flooded, all these different cultures say the world flooded. And many of those myths very much resemble the Noah story in terms of having one, one godly man or one man chosen by the gods or one family chosen by the powers that be to be saved from that flood. And again, that's in many different cultures. Scripture gives us, delivered by God, the, the facts of that flood and the facts of Noah being rescued. But when he says it escapes their notice, it almost carries with it, they're not willing to look at the evidence. They don't want to believe it, so they don't pay attention to it. Uh, I wish, again, I wish I could give a whole lot of details to this, but all over the planet, many of you are very familiar with this even better than I am. Some of our science students in the room could probably do this better than me. But that every fossil that's discovered is the evidence of cataclysm. So if, if we were to go out to some local river and, and a deer dies and, and it falls into the mud and we could go, wow, uh, 100,000 years ago, uh, from now, there's going to be a deer fossil there. Why won't there be a deer fossil there? Because everything in the world is going to come through and eat that carcass. Even under the sea, when a fish falls to the bottom, a dead fish falls to the bottom, as soon as that fish dies and falls into the mud, even if it's immediately buried in mud, it begins to deteriorate. <clears throat> and other animals and other creatures in the mud start to erase the, the, all evidence that that fish ever existed. And that is an ongoing process. The only time fossils are created is when something dies, falls into that mud or that sediment, and then it is buried massively, and then all air is squeezed out, and there is no further deterioration, and now rock will seep into the remains and replace the remains, and we get a fossil. That's a real cheap uh, description of the process. Uh, don't go try to get a PhD in geology based on how I just described it. But it takes a massive cataclysm to create a fossil. And we have in the United, well, actually, on every continent, we have fossils by the millions, sometimes stretched across thousands of miles of a single layer of fossils, sometimes hundreds of feet thick. All the detail behind that I can't go into right now, but all those hundreds of miles and thousands of miles and hundreds of feet deep of fossils were not created by just day-to-day -day events of animals dying and falling into the mud. That was created by something that suddenly buried hundreds of those, thousands of those miles under one layer of mud, and then under pressure, they were solidified. Now, this is not a happy Sunday school lesson that you go, wow, I, I'm going I'm to meditate on that this week. But the evidence of the flood is literally all over the planet. And this week I was reading, and that's why I wish it, I, I could do more on this. I was reading some things this past week, and it's interesting that even non-Christian geologists and non-Christian biologists acknowledge that the evidence of a flood is worldwide. And everybody tries real hard to say why it couldn't be the Bible story. 
That shouldn't surprise us. But one thing that is really compelling for me is if you, if you read in, in the Gospels, Jesus taught that Noah was a real and living man. Jesus taught that the flood was a real act of destruction of God's judgment for sin. Let's go to Matthew 24 for a second. Starting in verse 6. I'm sorry, 36. Jesus says this. But of that day and hour, he's talking about the day of his return. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. So Jesus is saying that even he himself, as a man on planet earth, did not yet know the date of his return. That was something he would would again know as he was with the Father. But as a man on the planet... He didn't need to know that. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. So Jesus is saying, you know what? In terms of the day of my return... It will be just like the days of Noah. They were not expecting it. Now, we know that that Noah was preaching for over 100 years that this flood was coming. And I'm sure some of you have seen both funny movies and serious movies that have tried to depict that. But I don't think any of us can comprehend Noah, Noah and his family building a huge ship for over 100 years while while Noah keeps preaching, a flood is coming. This whole land will be destroyed. The world will be destroyed. If you're not with me and if you're not with God, you will be destroyed. And they were mocking him for that sermon. They were mocking him for his teaching. And so only Noah, his three sons, his wife, and his son's daughters, eight people were saved. Only eight people on the planet were saved. I've even read some interesting biology uh, studies that, again, take things back in the not-too-distant past where they could say thousands of years ago, we know that biologically and genetically, humanity was almost wiped out. We can't explain it, but genetically we can show things drastically go back to a narrow point when humanity was almost wiped out. Guess what? You get to read Genesis and you know how that happened. That God is not ignorant and he is not stingy about revealing to us how things have gone through human history. And so that recognition that Jesus is saying, they didn't know it was going to come. They, in fact, go to the passage that was read for us this morning out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Tim read for us the first few verses of 1 Thessalonians 5. Now as to times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. So he is not saying we know exactly when it'll happen. 
But what he's, what he's teaching here and, and trying to get our attention through all of these, through Jesus and Matthew, through Paul in 1 Thessalonians, through Peter and 2 Peter, is have a mindset of expectation that Jesus is returning. So he, he gives us two different things they're saying. One is they're saying everything remains now as it always has been. The other thing he just told us in 1 Thessalonians 5 is they're going to be saying peace and safety, peace in our time. We can accomplish peace. We can bring peace to the world. We can establish kingdoms of peace. We can establish a world order of peace. And there are many men and women that have devoted their lives, and I think it's, a, in a sense, it's a worthy devotion, but are, have devoted their lives to trying to establish a world order of peace. But part of what God keeps saying through Scripture is that peace, that peace will never be accomplished until Jesus Christ is the one who comes and reigns in peace. Now, part of the challenge for us in this is even if we're not going to be mockers. So we might never say, well, everything remains as it is, so I don't believe Jesus is coming back. That we may absolutely be confident that Jesus is returning. And we might actually not be saying, I believe that mankind can accomplish peace and safety without God's help. But where we face a challenge is just the complacency of life. So how many people here are, are planning for your retirement? Okay. You get to. You get to. I remember when I was, and how many here should be replanning? No, no. But that recognition, I remember when I was 25, I mean, when I was in uh, high school, I wrote a paper. I told somebody about this. I hope it wasn't in last week's sermon. But uh, I wrote a paper called Why Jesus Will Return to the Planet in 25 Years. And, and I was wrong. <laughs> because that was in the early 1800s. And so enough years have gone by that my date was proven wrong. Now, I happened to find that paper in the barn, literally with the edges of the page eaten by rats, but I found that paper. And the paper was biblically accurate, except for setting a date. So here's, here's what Jesus said back in Matthew 24, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. And I remember... When I was writing that paper, I thought, you know what? I don't know the date, but how could it possibly take longer than 25 years? I think 25 years is far enough out in the future that I'm safe. Yeah. I mean, Israel and, and Egypt were constantly at it. There was Russia was threatening to take over the Mideast. All kinds of things looked like they were in place for prophecy to be fulfilled. And it looked like Gog and Magog was just right on the verge of happening. And all of that sense of impending fulfillment of prophecy led me to a false prophecy. I bet this is going to happen in 25 years. And my, my professor actually wrote there, you know, interesting paper. I think he meant interesting like stupid. But <laughs> nonetheless, you know, interesting paper, but I'm not convinced. And I look back at that and I go, well, he has every right not to be convinced. Because God said, I don't know how soon these things are going to happen. But you and I get to say, I want to be careful that I not 
myself start setting a date or saying it has to be by this time. But I also want to be careful that I don't let others influence me so that I make foolish choices. All through human history, when, when believers have thought that it was time for the return, believers have made foolish choices. Because we're not supposed to know, we get to keep planning our life with wisdom while we're actually building a mindset of joyful expectation. And I do mean joyful expectation. Now, how many people here have read some book on the, on the final days, the last days, or a Bible study, or our seven-year study through the book of Revelation, or whatever, that at some point you thought, that stuff sounds scary. I don't want to be here when that happens. And part of what I would say is, it makes sense that some of it sounds scary, because some of it is scary. Some of it is profoundly dark and terrifying. And we get to recognize God's judgment of evil on the planet and the hatred of the enemy for believers is going is to keep rising to a point, to a peak of fulfillment. And the enemy's opposition will intensify. And then one day, the Father's response to humanity's rebellion will be fully revealed and fully carried out. Those will be dark moments. But Paul says this in, in 2 Corinthians 6. He says, but today is the day of salvation. So instead of being fearful of that day, I get to make sure, actually, I'm going to miss some of that bad stuff because I'm with him. I may not miss the enemy's opposition to believers. There's no reason that you and I will not face persecution. There are Christians all over the planet facing persecution. But I get to recognize that I look forward to the true return of Jesus Christ because I'm with Him for eternity, and I want to start thinking that way. I actually want that to guide the wisdom of, of how I do things. I was at McDonald's having some coffee this morning, and, and a gentleman next to me, big guy, dressed up, decked out like a biker, because oh, he was. <laughs> His bike was right out that window. And he just broke into song of adoring Jesus. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, he, he's going to be with me. So I, I had a few words with him later to just wish him well in his ministry of music. I don't know if he's in ministry, but he should be. And that recognition that that he gets to adore Jesus Christ, you and I get to adore Jesus Christ, and then we're with him. We get to trust him, and we're with him. We get to depend on his death for forgiveness of our sins, and we're with him. And then we get to look forward to his return with anticipation because we're his for eternity. Now, if, if you're... If you're a mom or a dad with young kids, I don't know how many we have in the room, a few. How many would like to see your kids graduate? Yeah, go ahead, raise your hand. <laughs> You'd like to see your kids graduate, that's right. You'd like to graduate first, and then you can grow up and see your kids graduate. We want to see things. We want to see developments in our life. We want to see the next accomplishment of somebody we love. We want to see our little baby grow up and, and go to first grade. We want to see our little girl walk down the aisle with daddy to, to 
say I do with her husband. We want to see all of those developments. And we do not have to diminish one iota our enjoyment and our anticipation of all of those steps ahead. God is not saying stop caring about that. What he's saying is care joyfully and deeply about all of that. And then right above that, put the anticipation and the joy of my son's return. So I know my, my daughter looks forward to one day walking down the aisle with, with a wonderful man of God and saying I do with him. But I'm also 10,000% confident that if before that happens, she and I and Carrie were all in heaven together and I look at her and she goes, bummer. Here I am in perfection when I could have stayed on the dirt ball a few more years and met a guy. No. Her joy will be beyond description to comprehend this union with God is everything I was ever designed for. This is everything my heart ever truly longed for. So if you've met that guy, met that girl, raised that child, walked down that aisle, those are wonderful moments to celebrate. And what God keeps saying for us as believers is, please learn to treasure the return of my son even more. That you overcome the mindset of the mockers who are so focused on what is that they don't want to notice what's promised. That they're so focused on what they have. And it's interesting because he says this. I can get back to Peter. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. And here's an interesting thing for him to say. Following after their own lusts. And again, he's using a word there that does not just mean sexual lust. What he's saying is they don't want to hear about Jesus and they don't want to consider the return of Jesus because they're focused on satisfying their appetites. They're focused on satisfying their urges and their longings and their wantings. And out of that human rebellion, that, that sense of if I surrender my life to God, he might not be in favor of my urges and my wantings. So I'd rather reject him and serve myself. I'd rather reject and, and deny the return of Jesus Christ than live a life preparing for that return because I bring all my appetites in submission to the lordship and wisdom of Jesus Christ. So there's so many layers to this mindset. It's not simply I believe Jesus is coming. It's that I, I wisely and carefully evaluate how I live by my appetites, how I pursue my wants, so that I can keep saying, I submit my wants to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That means I'm actually okay with Jesus returning. In fact, now I'm free to actually joyfully anticipate it. Let's pray together. Father, we barely, barely, barely can envision what we're talking about. But your word makes it real clear, you want us to envision this. Father, that you want us to comprehend how you've worked in human history. So that we get a little bit of the awe and the, and the majesty of your work. That you can speak a plan to destroy an entire planet. And then your promise to Noah, Father, was that you would never do it again by a flood. In fact, your word says the next time it'll be by fire. 
But never again would we have to fear a worldwide flood. That you did it once, it accomplished your purpose, and you preserved Noah and his family through that. And now, Father, you are just as capable as promising us that one day your son will return. And that everyone who has put their faith in Jesus Christ, dying on the cross for our sins, everyone who has chosen Jesus as living Lord and master and ruler and king over our lives, we get to look forward to that return. And while we're here on the planet, we get to bring every plan, every appetite, every wanting, every desire, more and more and more submitted to the joy of your leadership. Because you love us, Father. But even when your leadership takes me in a different direction than my own wanting, your leadership will actually be better for me. The directions you've chosen will actually bring greater blessing to me than my plan would. Father, that's always true. Your ways are not only higher than my ways, your ways are always better than my ways. Help us to comprehend that, Father, so that we don't see your lordship as a threat and we don't see your son's return as a threat to our plans, that you are the fulfillment of our planning. Father, your word ends in Revelation with, with John crying out, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And I pray that your spirit would help us to grow that mindset that we both long for and look forward to the return of Jesus. And we can still have doubts and trepidations of how we will deal with circumstances. But if we're here to face them, your spirit will be sufficient for our care. But help us to love the return of your son because we love the authority and reign of this king already in our lives. So we're just looking forward to that reign expanding to include the whole universe. Thank you for your patience while we grow, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.